Well, you don't have to look very hard to find stories of epic leadership failures. In the political world, in the business world, in the church world, even just saying that, you probably have like five, yeah, you can probably think of five epic leadership failures off the top of your head right now that have maybe even happened in the past five weeks. Like they're with us all the time. I think it's almost like um, it's become so cliche, it's kind of numbing. I mean, what are we supposed to do with these stories of these epic leadership fails? Like, are we supposed to numb ourselves and just kind of go on and pretend like it doesn't happen or put our fingers in our ears and be like, well, I guess that's just how things are? Well, this story today, if you haven't already realized, is epic failure in the early church, a complete failure in the early church. And including failure in the story of the church is instructive because including the story of failure keeps us from thinking that we're awesome, keeps us from thinking that the reason why the church grew is because these disciples were awesome, that Peter was awesome or John was awesome. Like, it also keeps us from thinking, well, if Peter and John and the disciples were trying to set up some kind of structure that they knew kind of wasn't real, but they were gonna make money off it or they were gonna get some kind of status out of it, you don't include stories like this. You include propaganda. You don't include failure. But there's a story of epic failure right in front of us. And the church, though, doesn't need anyone to protect the brand doesn't need kind of like the false forgiveness that politicians and business leaders are kind of so good at giving. The church is protected by Jesus. And that gives us the freedom to actually be honest when failure comes. Because failure is going to come. It has. Because we can't help but fail in times. And if you've ever actually read the Bible, all the heroes of the faith are failures. Adam, instead of protecting the garden from the snake, instead of protecting his family from the snake, passively lets the snake um, do whatever he wants and Adam stands by, joins in and brings sin upon us all. That's pretty bad. Noah saved his family from the, a world of like, catastrophic events only to later just get drunk and shame himself. Abraham was obedient to God's calling but didn't stand by his own wife when she needed him, twice. Moses led God's people out of slavery. He also had a horrible temper that he directed to God's people and he directed to God. David, the best king that Israel ever had, slept with another man's wife, and when she got pregnant, tried to kill that other man, and did. Solomon, the wisest person supposedly to have ever lived, had a massive harem and used the kingdom he was supposed to serve as, as a kingdom to, to be able to serve himself. So if it was up to us, the church would crumble. God's people would just be nothing. And the more we think it's up to us, the less room we have for God. Like last week, we talked about the difference between being filled with ourselves and being filled with the Spirit. The more we think it's up to us, we fill ourselves with ourselves, where's God? How is God gonna fit in there? There's no room. We withhold ourselves from him. And in every place that we withhold ourselves from him, we will find failure, we will find death. So this story presents the very real dangers of withholding from God, the very real consequence of, of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy forces us to be someone we're not, to put on some kind of mask and pretend everything's fine, but everything's not fine. It's as ridiculous as this meme that you've probably seen around. It's not fine. The place is on fire. More than just some kind of coping mechanism, this story tells us that withholding ourselves from others is actually lying to God. I was just like, oh, I'm not really gonna share where I'm at. There's a, there's a reality, a truth in there that means you're, you're not being truthful with who God is or who you are to God. And it's testing the Holy Spirit. I can tell you as a, a semi-expert in the Bible, um, withholding yourself from God and testing the Holy Spirit is not a good way to go. Things don't happen good when that happens. 
And Jesus does not want us to go through life like that. He wants to save us from our own hypocrisy. He wants to save us from having to put on those like religious masks that we all put on, that things are good, when they're really not, when the, the whole building is on fire. And Jesus has come to rescue us from those false selves, to rescue us from a life of withholding ourselves from him. And Jesus gave it all in order for that to happen. So we're gonna walk through this story. That might be kind of like bonkers. It is a bonkers story. What in the world's going on here? And we're gonna walk through it and we will first understand what's going on and then we're gonna see how in the world does this thing apply to us today? Because is God still gonna strike people dead? Like uh, what, what in the world's going on there? I'd like to know. So um, let's find out where we're going first with holding ourselves from God. The first thing that we see is uh, in, in this kind of first little section with uh, Barnabas and the believers being in one heart and one mind, as God continues to give himself. God is continuing to give himself. Um, we've talked about these Pentecost dynamics of there's some kind of crisis and then the people get together and pray and then there's some kind of empowerment afterwards. And this is what we're, we're seeing the product of what empowerment looks like. Like there was a crisis, Peter and John, they were disciples, they were thrown in prison. Even when they were let out of prison, they're like, man, the leaders are against us, religious leaders, political leaders, what in the world? How do we, how do we be the church, like this small little group that seems to be growing kind of out of control? And, uh, and God um, empowers them. In fact, the last prayer meeting they had, the ground shook, like literally it was like an earthquake. And, and what are we, what's the product of that? Well, verse 32 says, everyone is in one heart and one mind. They're all together. There's 5,000 of them together. And you think there's quite a bit of diversity with 5,000 people, but yet they're all unified. Surely it's a lot of diversity, but they're all committed to unity because they're committed to living out of their true identity. They're one in the same spirit. But this one in heart and mind thing led to two things. The first thing it led to was radical living in the everyday because they shared possessions. People were selling stuff, People didn't have a car. Like, oh, well, I have a car. I'll give you my car. Or I have enough money to give you a car. I'll give you that. People are like, I don't have a place to live. Like, oh, I have a piece of property. I'll give you that or I'll share with that. There was all sorts of kind of crazy sharing that was going on with when people had needs. And what we find is that people didn't, there wasn't like an, uh, some kind of hippie communist commune where it was private property never existed anymore, but people were using private property for others first, not for themselves. It was kind of radical and amazing. And how great would it be to be part of a group like that? And then it says in, in verse 33, there are no needy people because of God's great power. Verse 33 says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. So it wasn't like they were really great at sharing first or they were really like all about, you know, this new kind of Christian community that we're trying to figure out. I mean, those things might be true, but it's God's power at work in them. They're being in one heart and one mind. God is continuing to give of themselves. And all of this was not because they were super great at it. It was because God's grace was working there. It was all about God actually working among them. Uh, and, the, and the power and the grace of God meant that there were not needy people. This is how the church is supposed to work. This is when you hear people who uh, kind of throw um, kind of shade on the church or criticize the church. They say, oh, like the church ought to like actually care for people. Like they're right. The church should. The church really should care for people who are needy, should care for people who are poor, care for people who are marginalized. That's kind of like one of our main things. And this is one example of that. Uh, the, and this is, uh, what, what this is is like the enjoyment we have with being with God overflows into the normal everyday stuff of life and allows us to radically live in this way, for that to be not actually radical, but kind of normal. So there's radical living, but there's also a radical message in the everyday that the message was all about the resurrection. 
This is Peter with like great power sharing about the resurrection. Why is, they just went through Pentecost. They just, last time they prayed, the ground shook. Like they're seeing tongues of fire on people, miracles, people are being healed. But yet Peter still has to plead with them over and over and over again and teach them about the resurrection because there's no formation without repetition. Like we need to hear it over and over and over again. Even if we were to have the most amazing God experience ever, like that's not enough to sustain us. We need to constantly hear about the resurrection like every Sunday morning and every whatever your missional community meets and every time you meet with that other person to pray through things. So some people were in need of basic possessions, but everyone was in need of hearing about Jesus' resurrection. Everybody had that need. All of us have that need. The other day, uh, Christina and I had lunch with Anne and she was talking about how she has this friend and she would talk about the gospel all the time with and, uh, and her friend was kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever, you know, Christians, blah, blah, blah. Um, but this friend uh, went through kind of a, a, had like a bit of a bad moment, ended up in hospital as well as some other things and Anne uh, cleaned this person's house for her. So when she came over, it was like a completely different place altogether and, and, and spent a lot of time and energy kind of doing that. It's not like, and loves cleaning people's houses. Um, but she did it because she loves people, because God's grace is at work powerfully in her. And the person came back and she said, now I know you're a Christian. Like I heard it a whole bunch before, but now I know you're a Christian because you actually did that thing. That's just cleaning somebody's house. Like we don't have to sell our houses. We can just clean someone else's house. Like even that is a radical thing. So talk by itself, it's cheap. And actions by themselves will always be misinterpreted. We have to have the two. It's like a plane with two wings. If we're not talking about the gospel, what we're doing will be interpreted as, oh, that's just a really nice person, really nice person, which is not true, because maybe you're nice, maybe not. Probably not as nice as you think you are. But really, the reason why you're doing that is because God's grace is powerfully at work within you. So we need, to talk, do we need to talk about it, but if we only talk and don't actually do anything, then we're hypocrites as well. We need to have both. And maybe... Um, you can, as this message is kind of going on, you can think of like, oh, who, is, who can I serve maybe in, in this kind of way that might be perceived as radical? Or who can I, um, who, who can I speak to? And, and maybe you want to serve somebody or speak the gospel to somebody and you don't know what those opportunities are. Well, that's why we pray. We ask for the spirit to empower us, to give us the boldness we need and to create opportunities to do it. We don't need to be kind of weird Christians who throw a gospel bomb and run away. And then you're like, oh, that's a weird person. Why am I ever going to get anything from that? I mean, the volunteer takeover is a great example. What a small way of a few hours on a Saturday morning will be interpreted as an act of love. That's amazing, and it should be, because it is. So where can we speak to others? Where can we serve others? Um, know that the great power does not come from us. That should relieve us of the burden of having to be amazing. Like, you don't have to be amazing, thank God. And God is gonna continue to give, continue to pour out his spirit on his people. And I want this church to be a part of that. And the only way it can is if we do this together. So God continues to give. And from time to time, uh, people are giving these really big gifts like, like Barnabas. Uh, remember, there's 5,000 people here and most of them are gonna be poor, like living hand to mouth. Like if they didn't get food that day, they don't eat that day, kind of poor. Um, and so this next section in the story is about people who are withholding from God. These next kind of 10 verses here. Uh, what we see is a standout gift given by Barnabas. There's like a little mini rock star in the faith here. Uh, Barnabas is one of Luke's heroes. He's gonna write, and we're gonna learn more about him as we go through Acts. He likes to write about Barnabas. Um, uh, he's an outsider. He's not from Jerusalem. He's from Cyprus, so he's a Greek-speaking Jew, which is different than a Hebrew-speaking Jew, someone who was born there in Jerusalem. So let's, we're gonna take a moment and look and see how Barnabas is different from Ananias and Sapphira. 
So Barnabas is described as generous. He's an encourager. He believes the best in people. And we're gonna see how that plays out in other future stories here in Acts. And Barnabas does not hold back at all here because to put something at the apostles' feet is to give a gift and basically have no control over it. It's not like, I'm gonna give this big gift only if you use it in this way, or I really want you to do it this thing. It's like Barnabas is like, here's all the thing that I just sold this field and you use it as you see fit. So he's kind of giving up control as well as, well as being very generous. Now, imagine you're part of a community that everyone else looks down on. Nobody takes you seriously. People make fun of you, talk about you behind your back. And this weird little community you're a part of, you wanna feel like somebody. And there's this generous guy, Barnabas, who's not even from around here. He gives this big, massive gift. And you see how people respond. Like, oh, he seems really generous. People are applauding him. Like maybe he has more status in the community now. And you see that kind of recognition and you want that for yourself. Because you have a field, you can sell it. You want that recognition too. What you want is the product of generosity without actually being generous. You like the idea of generosity, but you don't actually like being generous but you know you can probably get away with it. So you sell it, you sell that land, you say you're giving all that land, all that money to the church, but you're actually withholding some of it. Now, nothing was compelling Ananias to be generous. It wasn't a law, it wasn't a condition of membership. It wasn't like, you can only be part of this group if you have a field and sell that field. Like, that wasn't part of it. But what was compelling him was this religious keeping up with the Joneses. He wanted to be like Barnabas, and that's easy enough to get, right? Like, I want to be like Barnabas, that sounds great. And the church, the church could have been happy with anything. I mean, believe me, when you're starting out, any amount of money is good money, no matter kind of where it comes from. But Peter isn't so much concerned about getting money for the church as much as he is about the church being generous itself and it being purified and being people who are after God's heart, not after kind of their own hypocrisy going forward. So Peter's a good leader here, isn't happy with the church advancing through kind of means that aren't the best. Even if that means they get less money, he's okay with that. And there's something more than just lying to others here because Peter, in, 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 verse, in chapter five, verse three, Peter says that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit. And also in the next verse, in verse four, he says, you've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Ananias, one commentator says, in the effort to gain a reputation for greater generosity than he actually earned, tried to deceive the believing community, but in trying to deceive the community, he was really trying to deceive the Holy Spirit, whose life-giving power had created the community, maintained it in being. So in lying to each other, we also lie to God. In putting on our false selves, we withhold our real selves from others and from God himself. And that's the problem with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy will never allow you to be your true self. You will be stuck in this kind of false self, this mask kind of world. You'll be stuck in trying to fit in instead of belonging. Often when we think of hypocrites, we think of people who are gonna shout at others for drinking while they're like, you know, drinking themselves to sleep each night. And that, that's hypocritical. But there's another kind of hypocritical too. And that's uh, something that may be a little bit more in, insidious because being religious, that's a very socially acceptable way to be a hypocrite. We can show up, we can be here, we can say the right things, we know the words to say, we know the clothes to put on, maybe we're in part of a rota, show up for that, you know, prove that we're good. But we never actually reveal ourselves. Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite authors, wrote that the best place to hide from God is in the church. It's so true. You can play at being religious. What this shows is God does not play. He's not playing church, he's not playing family. This is real. 
and keeping up with the Joneses in our spirituality always leads to hypocrisy, always leads to us living out of false selves, not of the true selves who God's created us to be, every single time. We don't need to prove ourselves worthy. Like, let's get off that. We wanna pretend we're Barnabas, and that's great, but God wants you to be you. You may not be Barnabas, that's fine. Ananias withheld himself from God, and God struck him dead. So what about Sapphira? She was given the opportunity, to be honest. So Ananias carted out. Uh, what were these like, young guys thinking who were like, carting out these dead bodies? Like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I can't even imagine. Um, well, and so Sapphira came in. She was given the opportunity to be honest and truthful to God, but she didn't take it. So, and Peter says that she and Ananias both conspired to test the Holy Spirit. It's not a good thing to do that. Um, so same deal for Sapphira. She was struck dead. So what's the real deal here? What's the story about? It's, I'll tell you what it's not about. It's not about giving money. This is not like, therefore, you should all give money or you're gonna die. Like, that's just not, that's not what this is about. I would love you to give money, but it's not, it's something about deeper than that. Why do we give money? It's because we wanna be generous, not because we wanna be seen as people who give money. This is a realistic look into failure in the church. It's about the dangers of withholding ourselves from God, who we really are. And all of us are just like Ananias and Sapphira. All of us, every single one of us. We think, oh man, that's crazy. I'm not like that. Yes, we are, all of us. We withhold ourselves from God in some way. As humans, we always have. We withhold ourselves from God when we think God has withheld himself from us. So if God's withholding some kind of good from us and we're not gonna get it from God because he's withholding, that means we're not gonna get close to God. We're gonna withhold ourselves from God and find whatever that is in some other place. This is what happened in the garden. In the Garden of Eden, God, you're not good for some reason in some way that you could be good to me, but you're really not. And so I'm gonna do this thing that I know isn't right because you told me not to do it. But I need to find out something on my own. The lie is that God's holding back something from us. He's, he's not withholding. If we, even if we only read the first four chapters of Acts, we'd say God is pouring out himself over and over and over in ways that these people can't even handle. They can't even contain. Whether like the largest bucket they have can't hold it. I mean, let alone, and then you look at, the story of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a God giving himself over and over and over to people who take it for granted. And he still gives himself. God is never withholding. Do not believe the lie God's withholding. And when we think that he's withholding, we have to look somewhere else. Relationships, jobs, how we spend our time. When we withhold ourselves from God, when we conspire against the spirit, we die. And we may not physically die on the spot like Ananias and Sapphira here, but make no mistake, the parts that we try and keep away from God most definitely die. I mean, think about how that, in your own life, is it true that the, the, the parts in, our, in your life, in your heart, that you withhold from others and from God, are those parts flourishing? No. We know they're there. And those parts are not flourishing. They're slowly withering, and withering away and dying. Now, when that's applied to the whole person, all of us dies. Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. But Christ took on that death for all of, all of us who follow him. Christ has absorbed that. But as people who follow Jesus, though, even though we may, not, uh, we, we may be in some ways experiencing that eternal life that gets from following Jesus, the parts that, of us that we withhold from God, are gonna, they're gonna wither, they're gonna die. They're not gonna grow in the way that God wants us to. And Jesus does not want any part of us dead. He wants to see us as a whole person flourish, as a whole people together. Because he is most glorified when we are most alive because we get to depend on him in all things. Now we should see Ananias as a mirror to ourselves. It should cause us to ask, where are we withholding ourselves from others? Where are we withholding ourselves from God? 
Not if, because we are. It's, it's where are those places? We all are. And all of those places are dead. But thankfully, Jesus come not to give us death, but to give us life, to breathe life into those areas that we're afraid of him touching. And an overflowing, abundant life at that, because God has never withheld himself from us, never. He's always giving, always continues to give. But if we're intent on withholding ourselves, we won't get to experience life in him in its fullness, the way that we're meant to. And all of us attempt to withhold parts of our lives from God and from others, and nothing good will ever come from it. So talk to God about that. It's very easy. So talk to him, talk to somebody, to a human and to God. I mean, if you're not part of a missional community, like talk, you're, we think you're missing out because that's what we've kind of staked our, uh, our church on. God has created us to flourish when we're with people and not like the fake kind of being with people, but actually being our true selves, being with people so that we're known and we get to know others. And we withhold from God when we think he's withholding from us. And so how does the church respond to this failure, to this judgment? Do they choose to run away and maybe take up some kind of hobby that's a little bit less lethal than dropping dead? <laughs> what happens here? Well, we get like a really brief look at it in verse 11, which is a, an awareness, a healthy awareness of God's presence. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It's so not just the church, but the whole community who's hearing about these people who are dropping dead because they're withholding stuff from God. Yeah, you think great fear? Yeah, that's scary. This is, this is kind of like a horror story. What's going on here? I, what were people in that church thinking? Like, what did I sign up for? <laughs> this was not part of the membership process. I was not made aware. Well, let's talk about a few things. First, this is the first time the word church is, made, is, is mentioned in the New Testament. The word ecclesia that we often translate as church, the first time this comes up. God has not deserted his people. God is with his people. In fact, he's gonna continuing and, and to mold and create a, a better people out of it. God has not deserted them. He's warned them. And the 5,000 people who are part of this church is like as a parent disciplines their kids, not out of anger and hatred, but out of, out of love in order for them to grow. And this fear, again, spread beyond the church. Notice, I mean, previously, some kind of, God does some kind of crazy thing, and then the next thing we read is thousands were added to the church that day, or uh, every day people were added to the church. Not here. Everyone's afraid to join. In fact, the next verse says, um, uh, in verse 13, no one else dared join them. Yeah, I get it. I would not want to join a church where people are dying. So failures like this, hypocrisy here, this sin, always stunts the growth of the church, always. God wants healthy things to reproduce, not unhealthy things. Where the church needs to be refined and sin is dealt with, God is happy to put the brakes on. He doesn't, God isn't really bothered. <laughs> that means there are others in the church who are affected by sin inside the church because God had to slow the mission down. There are also others who are not yet part of our church that are affected by our sin because God had to slow the mission down. If we love other people, our faithfulness to God is a way to love other people. They're intimately connected. And I wonder if this story is instructive for us today. I mean, all the conflicts that we have, they're not just our conflicts. They're gonna affect how we live out being the people of God in Charlton. It affects us all. It affects people who aren't part of us yet. And a life of repentance isn't just good for you. And I mean, it is, but it's not just good for you. It's good for God's mission as we go forward as a people who are constantly depending on Jesus. And let's talk about um, this fear that comes up. Great fear seizing the whole church. Talk about fear, godliness, and holiness here. The first thing is fear. 
Fear of God is different than being afraid of God. Fear of God is like a healthy respect, a healthy awareness of how powerful God is, how small and insignificant we are, and really where we fit into that kind of ecosystem of the world. Fear of God is like a healthy respect. It's a knowledge of his holiness and our lack of it. God is completely perfect and holy and good, and and we're not. And fear of God is, is recognizing that. It's an understanding of his justice, of how if it was just up to us, we deserve to be punished. This holy God has all the power in the world and rightfully so. And then what do we have? We don't really have very much. And when we realize that, that's what fear of God is. Now, godliness, in this fear, the church developed a healthy respect for the place of godliness and holiness. I mean, trying to live a godly life, trying to live a holy life is not just something that, again, it's not just something that's good for us. It's good for the other people in our church. It's good for people who aren't in the church yet. And godliness is basically acting in the way that Jesus told us to. And if we believe that God has the best for us, acting in the way that God's told us to is actually the best thing for us to do. If we're living a godly and holy life, we won't look like others around us all the time. Our time is different. How we handle money is different. Our sexual lives are different. Anything else is living in hypocrisy withholding ourselves from God. And our sin is gonna be dealt with. Like, I don't think Ananias and Sapphira got together and said, let's see, how can we test God? How can we lie lie to the Holy Spirit? Um, Let's figure out how to do this. But in living a hypocritical life, they withheld themselves from God and they did test God and they did conspire against the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Wickedness is anything that's out of alignment with God. It's sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, going to pornography websites, talking about people behind their backs, people who are boastful, proud, abusive, who love money more than others. All, there's many other things that wickedness is. And everything withheld from God is gonna bring us death. Now, when we see ourselves first in light of a holy God, if this is, uh, this is where we are, and then we start seeing God as good, as holy, uh, we first understand his goodness and his holiness, and then we kind of understand where we are and our lack. So we're like, actually, I'm maybe not as good as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not as amazing or generous or loving as I thought I was now that I've encountered this God who is all those things perfectly. The only thing that connect, connect us down here to God up there is the cross. That's the only thing that, connect, that can connect us there. That's why the cross is there, so that God can have a relationship with us. But then, that's not it. Like, this is a, it's a continual thing. Because the more we grow, we're like, wow, God is actually, I thought God was really good, but man, the more I'm living my life, he's actually much better than I thought. And the more I'm reading about the Bible, the more I'm understanding how great God is. And the more I learn about myself, the more I realize how much I, how less I, awesome I thought I, were, I really was. And then, we, as we grow, we like, there's, it, it, it gets worse. That chasm gets worse because God ends up getting so much better. And we kind of realize, I am so much nothing by myself. How could I possibly do this thing? And the, on, and the only way for that to not be overwhelming and overburdening and for us to just not like put our heads in the sand and pretend like this doesn't exist is for the cross to get bigger each time. As we grow in understanding God's holiness, and as we grow in understanding our complete lack of it, the only thing we can cling to is the cross. It's the only thing that can give us hope because only the cross brings us together. We get more of our false selves revealed over time, more of our hypocrisy gets revealed over time, and we, uh, we realize that we withhold more of ourselves from him. We don't try and make ourselves good. That's the religious thing to do. We cling to the cross. We bring that piece of us that we don't really want others to see, but because we know God is all in for us, we do not withhold ourselves from him. We don't withhold himself from his church. We get to live free, honest lives, not false reflections of some masks, but who we truly are. 
And without the cross, a mask will always be stuck on our face, our true selves always unable to get out from underneath it. And the only hope we have for people like us, for people who are bent on withholding ourselves, who want to be seen as better than what we are, who easily lie to others, who easily lie to God about who we actually really are, the only hope we have is in the cross of Christ. And on that cross, Jesus did not hold back. He was held there. He didn't say, no, that's enough, I'm good, 85% is okay. He went all in completely. And we put him there and he was all in. If you ever question if God is really there for you, this, the cross is the best example, the ultimate example. He is more than you will ever know. He gave it all and he gave it all so that for us who are born and keeping ourselves to ourselves, withholding ourselves, we wouldn't have to stay that way so we can bring our honest selves to him. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the son to the father, never separate before, but now separated because of us. Jesus was taking the curse that we should have had on himself. The curse he took was God withholding his love, pouring out his judgment. And God struck him dead, not because of failure like Ananias and Sapphira's, but God struck him dead because we could, so that we could experience victory. Now, everyone who is in Jesus will never experience a lack of God's love in your lives, ever. The judgment has been swallowed up. And even when we give in to Jesus' love, we still find places that we withhold from him and others. And so we ask for forgiveness and we don't choose to continue in withholding ourselves. And Jesus' death not only deals with those past sins that we know that might come up and haunt us, Jesus' death deals with that completely, 100%. It's done. Jesus said it's finished. He didn't say it's finished and then maybe some other things will happen. It's finished, it's done. But the same kind of withholding and, and uh, problems we have now in the present, all the brokenness we're participating in right now, all the brokenness we'll participate in the future is done. So as we come up here, we bring ourselves to him, our imperfect selves, our broken selves, our selves that need to be re-livened by God. And we ask for him to free us from when we withhold from him, knowing that if we hold on it to ourselves, we are gonna die. Those parts of us die. But Jesus died so that we don't have to. Freed from the past, where we withheld ourselves from God, free from the present where we are, free from the future where we will. And into these places, God just doesn't just kind of deal with it and say, like, okay, you can pass, I guess. God gives us life. And this meal is a celebration of Jesus winning that life for us. This bread is a representation of Jesus taking on all of our brokenness and taking on his body. And he was destroyed for it, struck dead. And this the cup is a symbol of Jesus' blood being poured out for us completely, 100% poured out. And while he drunk the punishment that we deserved, we get to drink in new life as we get to follow him. As we come up, we're, we get to give up on keeping something back for ourselves. As God has given everything for you, let him continue to do that work. Don't try to stop his work that he's doing in you. Don't, like, it's not worth it, I promise you. Might be difficult, but it's much better. And if you haven't yet given yourself over to Jesus, given yourself over to his love, please don't eat and drink with us. If you wanna give yourself over and haven't yet though, you're most welcome to join us. It's a great first step to take. You don't have to be a member of our particular church. You should be a member of some kind of church somewhere. But this is the wonderful thing about our Lord. When we realize that we're holding ourselves back from him, he's gentle, he's kind. He's just. He moves us along in the way that we need to be moved along.
and he won't break us if we let him in. So together, let's allow God's love to cover all of us. Let me pray.